0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced and recorded by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. If you're like me, and you probably are, you can remember back to, uh, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, and think about your history classes. And I know that for, for my memory, that involves bulletin boards because I grew up in an era where that was the content creation standard, For educational systems and I also remember a lot of uh, textbooks that had been well let's just say well used by my peer students across the years Um, I've always been really fascinated by history I I, uh, grew up in a family where I not only had a parent that was a World War II veteran but I also had uh, grandfathers who were both World War one veterans and so that was always part of the family narrative Um, although you know as you might imagine uh, they didn't necessarily talk about their experiences all that much, there are exciting new ways to teach about history, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the show today. Teo Mayer is a technology strategist, writer, producer, and educator who has worked with organizations such as route sixty six Road Ahead Partnership, as well as the u s. World War One Centennial Commission and the Doughboy Foundation. Teo is a self proclaimed history nerd who is also passionate about leveraging technology to teach lessons uh, from the past. Teo, thank you so much for me, giving us your time today.
1: Oh, Scott, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So, you have a really interesting background. As I learn more about you in preparation for our discussion, um, you do proclaim that you're a history nerd. What, what was it that, because history is not something that everyone is drawn to with passion or or even ongoing curiosity in some cases. What was it that brought you into being so interested about history, Um, especially because you've done that not only in the context of World War I, but also what we might call some aspects of Americana?
1: You know, Scott, I uh, started out my career as a futurist and a technologist, and I started a bunch of tech companies and much to my surprise, around 2014, I found myself involved with the. US. World War One Centennial Commission and as a technologist, helping them uh, as a CTO to get set up and so forth. And it wasn't until that experience that I actually started getting involved in history. And you might appreciate this. I found myself as the host, uh and and uh and producer of a podcast (laughs) called world war one centennial news and because I was not an expert, I was not a historian, I wasn't credentialed, um, I was so fascinated with the story of World War I, one of the more consequential events in our history that actually disappeared, that I started talking to historians and authors mm-hmm. and people interested, and it drew me in. And here, 10 years later, I, uh, I am very much a history nerd. Uh, before before we leave that,
0: um, as you've learned about World War One, you know one of the fascinating things about it is when you think of the quote unquote big wars, um, you have a recency effect where people might think of Afghanistan and Iraq because that's happened recently. They went on for, but in both cases, a long period of time, even longer than the World Wars. You think about, um, certainly, if you're of a generation, you would think about Vietnam or Korea. But World War II is, is the war that probably dominates most of what people think of in terms of world wars. That could be for a variety of reasons. It's more recent. There are more movies done about it. I was a big John Wayne Green Beret fan at a point in time. World War One's is not as, you know, it's just not in the memory that comes up first. Do you have opinions on why you think that is, given that you think that that's such an important moment in history?
1: Well, when I joined uh, the US uh, World War I Centennial Commission, one of the very first things I undertook was exactly what you're talking about. Let's determine what our challenge is mm-hmm. in commemorating the centennial of World War I. And we were unfunded, so I, we had no money. So the tool that I had available to me uh, from a technology standpoint was using uh, Google's SEO tools. Mm-hmm. And I did a study where I looked at how many times the key word search terms uh, about World War I were being used in the United States, and then I contrasted that with how they were being used in Europe. So in oh. the U.S., we were getting weekly searches on World War One key search terms, you know, the Great War, World mm-hmm. War I, WWI, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we were getting six to 8,000 searches a week in contrast to Europe, where they were getting 160 to 180,000 times a week. Wow. In other words, the, the, the awareness and the consciousness about World War I in the United States just didn't exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've been asking the question of how and why, and there are a lot of answers to that. If I were a graduate student, that would be my thesis. <laughs> but I got one of my best answers from a cab driver. <laughs> Actually, it was a Uber driver. As as I was writing it down, you know, he's saying, what are you doing in town? Well, I'm going to this conference. And the question went on. I said, so why do you think nobody knows about World War One?" He said, well, look, World War Two, you had Hitler, you had Pearl Harbor, mm. uh, you had the atom bomb, and you had Tom Hanks. What do you have? <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty clever answer.
0: That is, yeah. Yeah, I I think all those things goes into the the story around World War II as um, as being more dominant in some ways. So you know, I mean, World War One is part of the standards that teachers uh, are you know having to uh, train their students to. But you know, there's probably a more culturally important explanation for why teaching World War One. Is so important why do you think that the relevance of world war one just because just beyond the fact that it's an important part of history why do you think that's so important to teach right now
1: well what's interesting is up until recently uh most of the materials that were available to teachers were very very eurocentric mm-hmm. it was the perception of what was happening in europe and actually america's role in world war one it's very Fair to say that it was probably one of the most consequential events in our history. Let me just put it into a quick context. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were involved for 18 months, right? So, And we tried to stay out of the war for years. But in those 18 months... The United States went from a standing army of maybe, and it's it's arguable what the actual numbers were because a lot of them were local state militias, but we went from a standing army of maybe uh, 180,000 to 280,000 people to putting 4.7 million people in uniform, shipping Hmm. 2 million people to Europe. Uh, It meant that the entire structure of the United States had to transform in terms of function, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of industry, in terms of, just think about making shoes and belts and transportation and ships and so forth. We were an agrarian, irrelevant little backwater country in those days. And we came out 18 months later on, you know, uh, as as a a relevant force uh, uh, on the world stage. That's really transformative in a really small, small space of time. And why nobody, you know, why it was lost is, is a very interesting story.
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating lens that, um, you know, I, I just don't know that I've ever heard, but it makes complete sense. I mean, based upon what you said, of course, you it's counterfactual. But if, if we would have not been involved in World War I, it's likely that success in World War II could have never happened.
1: Well, uh, you know, there are many people and historians that believe that World War Two is World War One redux. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's, uh-huh. it's just it's just the second part of it. Yeah. One yeah. of the reasons they stopped fighting was they just ran out of bodies, and <laughs> and America coming into the war. One of the reasons it ended uh, an entire year earlier than than everyone expected was really. Um, the, the, the combating nations were just so worn out, mm-hmm. and these Americans came in with fresh energy, and it just became obvious that it needed to stop.
0: Yeah, interesting. Uh, before we talk uh, in more detail about the Doughboy Foundation, I want to get to one more uh, element of your background. You describe yourself as a technologist. Um, what led to that interest and uh, sort of narrate you know, what your view on the uh, the necessity of technology for today's student is like why why is it so important that we embrace technology in the way that we teach
1: well i was very fortunate to come up in the 70s and that was a very very fervent time in in the world of technology Uh, and actually for me it started as as in music Mm -hmm. Uh, i was one of the very very early moog 3p uh, players, uh, uh, in, in Los Angeles, a very complicated five box device mm-hmm. that you all plug together. I was a terrible musician, but I really knew how to make the box work. <laughs> and, and I did a lot of studio work and I got really involved. And from that, a company called TIAC hired me to help mm-hmm. them launch something called TASCAM with the idea of bringing the recording studio democratizing and bring it to people. And from that, then I wound up starting a company called Meta. Believe it or not, it was called Metavision mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, I don't know, it was, it was mid-70s, 74, 75. And we were changing technology in terms of uh, media uh, production and the application of technology to communications and and media in, in general uh, and we built theme parks and we did uh you know uh uh national exhibits and and it was a really fervent fun time because mm-hmm. technology was just expanding uh in the midst of all of that i realized that i didn't really want to produce content i want to create technology so i started a company called panoram technologies and we created this wonderful little international company that um that put out visual systems. We had the patents on stitching images together to make big giant videos and so right, forth. Right. And that, that that spun out into a lot of things. And I found myself, you know, constantly uh, sitting on stages talking about what was next in, in a very, very fervent time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's still a big part of what I do.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so, so let's start talking about the Doughboy Foundation. You've been doing work with them for a number of years. Uh, maybe start by just narrating what the foundation is and what their purpose is. But, but you also, before we started recording, started to get into the Genesis story of how the World War I Centennial Commission sort of led into some of this work. I, I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and talk about, you know, the, the foundation and how it started and what it's resulted in.
1: Uh, yeah, and this helps to contextualize the World War I teaching resources that were created. So uh, in, in 2013, uh, Congress uh, passed a, a piece of legislation that created the United States World War I Centennial Commission. Now, commissions are an interesting thing, and and your social study teachers and so forth know that they've been around. The first one was done during Washington's era, right? But mm-hmm. they're, they're used to... Uh, uh create independent device, make recommendations for policy, uh, study problems and issues. Uh, they're, they're a tool of, of the government with a very interesting um, very interesting difference in that they they have a half-life. So a commission is created. Uh, in many cases they're given, you know the, the law gives them a mission and then they fulfill that mission and then they go away most things that the government creates never go away. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Most things, uh, you know, uh, don't go away. And uh, when the United States World War I Centennial Commission was created, as is want for the last number of decades, they weren't appropriated. In other words, they weren't given any money. Mm -hmm. They were uh, basically said, here's your mission. We want you to uh, lead the national commemoration of the Centennial of World War I. And you don't have any money, but good luck and you'll figure it out. So, Uh, it is in fact a federal agency and it can't raise money. Only the IRS can raise money. So very cleverly, they immediately launched a nonprofit. And that nonprofit was a 501c3 called the Doughboy Foundation, Mm. which in fact then became uh, the ability to raise funds for programs and projects. And as the commission sunsets, which it's going to do in September of this year, The Doboy Foundation goes on as the steward for those programs and projects, so Mm -hmm. it was the implementation element of what the World War I Centennial Commission did.
0: Sure, that makes sense. So there there are a number of resources created by the Foundation. I want to start, though, by focusing on the mobile apps that were created, and and specifically the Virtual Explorer app. so I've played around with it, but, but I, I think okay. since you, you're more intimately aware, with, uh, aware of what, it, what its uh, capabilities are, maybe you could give sort of an overview of what the app is and some of the features that it has.
1: And let me put that into context as well. Mm-hmm. One of the projects that the commission took on was to build a national World War I memorial in the nation's capital because there were memorials – actually, they were created in backwards order – uh, you know, Vietnam, actually, uh, I think Vietnam was the first one, Korea, which is not exactly in the order, World War II, and there was actually no national memorial uh, in, in commemoration of World War One. Mm-hmm. So they took on as a capstone project, uh, the creation of the World War I memorial. Uh, they got Congress to give them a park across the street from the White House Mm -hmm. Uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue near 14th and 15th and um, took over a park that was there uh, and had an international design competition, uh, went through the whole process of getting approvals of creating this new memorial, uh, raised $50 million uh, and went ahead and built the memorial during COVID, uh, broke ground in, in fall of 2019. And in that process, at one point, the question came up, and of course, I got involved as as CTO, what kind of technology should we embed in this memorial? Mm -hmm. And the answer from me immediately was, I don't think any, because whatever we put in there, you're not in a structure or a capability of doing technology refreshes. It'll be out of date in three years. It'll probably stop working in six months. Why not go down a different road? and have everybody bring their own technology. And if we're going to pick a technology, the cell phone is, of course, you know, the smartphone is a a technology if it happens to be outdated that's on the user. But let's use that as the technology for putting the educational and interpretive overlay uh, of this memorial into place so we can teach people about World War One. And if we're going to reach a next generation, let's actually go a little bit tech forward and let's use augmented reality as a technology of choice so that people can drop airplanes and tanks and we can put up virtual kiosks wherever we want them mm-hmm. and we can do a giant timeline tower and tell stories and really help people experientially understand World War One. And so we prototyped that, and we tested it, and it was a really good idea. Uh, there wasn't much to go on on how to do this at the time. Uh, but then I went to the dev team at one point and said, look, we're going to have you know millions of people coming through the memorial, but wouldn't it be great if we could take the memorial to the people? Mm-hmm. And could you guys take a 3D model of the entire memorial, and allow us to drop it onto the ground, raise it up to shoulder level, blow it up so it's big enough to walk around inside of, and then let's put all of our interpretive materials inside of that. And we tested it, and it works, and that's what the, uh, that's what the Virtual Explorer app is. And so it allows you to take the World War One memorial drop it into, it works best if you have some space to move. So, Mm -hmm. you know, backyard, driveway, basketball court, uh, parking lot, park, uh, and, and then you can start to actually experience the memorial and all of the content that was developed during the centennial by one of the commissioners named Dr. Libby O'Connell is what we used for a lot of the material. Mm -hmm. So one of the, um,
0: i guess the sub applications is what i'll call it you may have a more articulate or one of the features yeah features okay one of the features is the timeline tower um so so obviously we're on audio it's hard to visually describe this we are linking the doughboys website uh to uh the text accompanying the podcast and so i would encourage viewers uh, listeners sorry to go to the website and download. Uh, the the um, Visual Explore app from the website. It's free, uh, and it's on the most popular uh, devices, obviously. It's much easier to experience this if you see it. There's no reason not to. But, um, Teo, could you sort of describe what the Timeline Tower is so that listeners can get a sense of, of sort of what that feature would look like if they were experiencing it?
1: Yes. When we were doing the development on what are we going to do here, the development team was very worried because we couldn't find a lot of references on what to develop, and we didn't have a huge budget, right? Mm -hmm. So we created a very rapid development fail early program to create uh, different ideas. And one of them, of course, was how would you, if you had augmented reality, how would you create a timeline? Because Timeline is one of the key teaching tools uh, to create event relationships and so forth. And what they came up with uh, was a giant virtual 80-foot tower. So if you're in a place and you drop the timeline, uh, you have this giant tower at the very top of it because we had to limit the height of it is a time vortex a big blue swirling <laughs> yeah. space and then you roll up and down the uh, with, with you know finger or whatever you roll up and down the timeline and we took 50 key events of world war one and when you tap on one you get a little 15 to 30 second narration on that idea and then you can go you know start to create the relationship with events uh, and in fact We're going to talk about how we've packaged all of this up for teachers, uh, 7th to 10th grade teachers. Uh, For them, uh, in part of the lesson plan that that they can access to use these tools, for the timeline tower, we also then included an accessible spreadsheet that has all of the timeline events in a a spreadsheet Hmm. format so that they can create exercises for their students, that uh, they can create event relationships, Uh, give you a really good one. The context of when did the war start and when did America get involved? Or mm-hmm. or even another really interesting time relationship. Uh, there was a presidential election in 1916. Uh, the incumbent president, Woodrow Wilson, uh, ran on a platform. He kept us out of war. If you look at the timeline relationship between the election, and his inauguration and when America entered the war, you have a very interesting discussion with your students. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I I will say that the vortex freaked me out. A little, cause I, I kept trying to get <laughs> up to it just to see what would happen. Um, trying to challenge boundaries, I guess. But, you know, one of the things that struck me about the timeline and then several of the other features. But then it really hit me when I got to the stories of service is that. The idea of narrative is very important, not only in history, but it's intentionally brought into this app. Um, what are, what, what was, what, what's the feature about Stories of Service, and why do you think that is, for me, it was very resonant. Why do you think it's so effective?
1: Well, let's start with the idea of narrative uh, in, in general. Uh, you know, the dev team on the app were all young. And, uh, they schooled me a little bit in, in how long something should be (laughs) and not to get pedantic in any way. And by the way, they reminded me that, you know, we don't eat meals, we snack. And by the way, (laughs) we don't read. So talk. (laughs) And so we went into narrative and, and we actually generate narrative so you can listen to the stories, not just, you know, uh, not go textual into it. Mm Um, Stories of service is a very interesting feature um, because it's not fully realized yet, as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. Um, there were 4.7 million people in uniform, as, as I mentioned, uh, but there was a giant file, uh, fire in one of the uh, storage places of records, and much of the World War I military records burnt up so it is really the ability for families to be able to tell the family story of their uh veteran and their veterancy and connect back to world war one from that perspective so we gave people the ability to uh submit stories of service uh and and um, be able to tell the quick story and see a few pictures about. Mm-hmm what happened to their family in this period of time.
0: Yeah. And obviously, um, it's hard to get that from the, you know, because the age of individuals, um, and it struck me, you know, when, because my father was a World War II vet, of course there was a movement, um, you know, decades ago to start trying to capture oral histories of World War II vet because, you know, as you know, that they just didn't talk about the war. Um, and, and so now, you know, you look back and you feel like there's a gap in this, in the, in the, the grassroots stories of what actually happened. But you're right, it still lives through families. And it's, it looks like it's very easy to uh, contribute to the stories of service and would certainly encourage people to do that.
1: Yes. And also, as you start to get into this as a teacher, if you start to go to primary sources, some of the most absolutely popular and relevant ones are diaries. Mm-hmm. And, and the narrative, I back to narrative, the narrative of people's experience, uh, you know, uh, I mean, we'll get back to who it was that we said over. We said over one in four draft age young men in the nation. Wow. Didn't send over. we recruited. we we drafted mm-hmm. one in every four young men, which means that every family, yeah, every city, every town was deeply affected by all of this. Um, and uh, and th- th- those stories need to be remembered, you know uh, n- narrative I, I met a professor recently who uh, uh, is uh, in uh, out of Atlanta. Uh, who whose whole premise is the uh, the narrative story of history, mm-hmm. and uh, and he talked a lot about the importance of telling the stories. Uh, so much so, and so many of these stories were lost. At one point, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I, I did uh, a weekly podcast for three years called World War I Centennial News, and in that I had a guest who came on, who had written a book called The World War One Genealogy Research Guide mm-hmm. uh, for all of the people who are interested and want to learn about the history of their family and so forth. And it was such a relevant document. We licensed it and we give it away on the website um, so that if you're trying to figure out how do I uh, discover my family narrative about World War One, at least we have a starting place for you.
0: Yeah, I actually uh, filled out the form and, and got that by email. So it was very easy to do, and I'm excited to play around with some of the resources. So let's switch gears now and, sure. um, and go ahead and talk about, uh, first of all, and you can take this in either order, the, other, the, the resources that are available to accompany the app from the Doughboy Foundation, and then also giving your thoughts on how to effectively integrate this into uh, a classroom.
1: So, so if you go to the website and look under educate, you'll see, uh, and by the way, it's doughboy.org. So it's oh, not hard. hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, deal D-O, like doughboy, like, uh, Pillsbury, but it's doughboy.org. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of questions about how did the term doughboy come about? It was the name of the American soldiers mm-hmm. as they went to Europe. It was the nickname. Uh, the Brits started to call us Sammy's. <laughs> uh, but somehow the word Doughboy stuck. Huh. So uh, that that is a World War One American soldier. Um, and so the, the website is doughboy.org. Uh, and if you look under education, you will find uh, a, a whole bunch of things for you, including a link to the World War I uh, teaching uh, resources. Uh, where we wanted to take all of the wonderful materials that were developed uh, during this period, package them up, and uh, we were trying to find a way to get them into the hands of teachers and realized early on that um, nobody knows who the Doughboy Foundation is and we needed to uh, have a platform that school systems would be comfortable with and so forth. And we found a program Uh, which is a corporate social responsibility program from Verizon called Verizon Innovative Learning. And we met and we formed a partnership and we're offering all of these teaching resources through uh, Verizon uh, forward slash learning uh, or through our website. There's a link over to it. Uh, And we packaged up lesson plans. Uh, We packaged up primary sources podcast. There's a five-minute, one of the wonderful things that the the group that developed the education material, Dr. Libby O'Connell's group, who had some wonderful historians working with her, Dr. Chris Capazola from MIT, uh, Dr. Jennifer Keene, who's from Chapman University down the street from where we are, Dr. John Murrow and Dr. Jeffrey Tammons, who focused on the African-American focus, and Dr. Herman Viola, who was the curator emeritus for the Smithsonian. Um, and a whole bunch of others. Those are just a a few worth mentioning. What they did when they started developing the materials was they didn't look at it from a military and political perspective only, but they looked at how World War I changed America through the lens, through a social lens. Hmm. So they looked at it as uh, citizenship and the First Amendment, which had a really interesting ride during that period, very relevant to right now, yeah. Immigrate immigrants and uh, and and divided loyalties between, you know, I, I am a recent German immigrant. What happened to me as we go to war with Germany, the lens of looking at how World War I affected women's and women's rights or mm-hmm. African-Americans and uh, Native Americans. Uh, another really interesting subject is how propaganda was mm-hmm. used to sell the entire war to the American people. Uh, we have a section that looks at the war from the focus of what was known then as the Spanish flu, which was the last global pandemic. Uh, and there's so many ways of looking at all of this that that you can then, as a teacher, tie into other levels of study. There's a documentary for each one of those categories, a little five-minute conversation starter Uh, There are primary sources. There are, uh, you know, uh, feature focuses. So all of these materials we're now packaging up and we're putting them onto the Verizon platform as lesson plans and resources for teachers to access. Uh, We started going to the NCSS conference for the first time this year. And we have a teacher advisory group that we work with. Uh, we originally had about 20. We have candidates, about 250 more right now. Uh, and, and we're trying to get the teachers to guide our process in making these materials relevant to the classroom in 2023, mm-hmm. 24, 25, 26.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the uh, important things, uh, because of the quality, the depth, and also the breadth of this content is, uh, you know, I think when you hear what the focal point of the Doughboy Foundation is and, and, and so on and so forth, you think, well, it's for the social studies teachers. Of course it is. But I could immediately think, you know, when you were describing uh, the, the emphasis on social effects, that if I, was, if I was trying to teach communication concepts at a certain age group, you um, the propaganda aspect would be you know very important to me. Uh, and you know, if, and so I think that's really interesting that because this is done at such a high level, teachers from other disciplines than social studies are going to find relevance
1: when we did the podcast, and Scott, you'll appreciate this as 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 a uh, podcaster. when we did the podcast, our creative process every week, and we had to put out a show. Once a week, and it was not everybody's job. You know, it's just yeah, something that yeah. we, as, as it is not for you, it's a pretty heavy lift. And we would have, you know, uh, half a dozen guests, et cetera, et cetera. But the way we developed our editorial every week was we would look at current events in the newspaper mm-hmm. that week or the week prior. And then we would tie the entire show back to what was happening today yeah. and its genesis in. World War One for America. And we did that successfully for three years. So what I say, it's a really consequential event. And as you put out, you know, how, how you know, you can go into all of these vertical subject areas mm-hmm. and connect them back. Uh, we did that weekly for 158 episodes. And and it, it, it you're absolutely right. Once you start to get into it, how much all of this is swirling around us. If you look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. Yeah. Uh, you know it it, it it it's all defined there um the actual creation for an Israel was first proposed during World War one mm-hmm. uh it, I, you know you get me started I'll get on the soapbox I'm gonna stop
0: <laughs> <laughs> well so th- there is one other question um so so we've come to understand you know about uh the doughboy foundation and and the app and by the way there's also an app um a companion app to the virtual explorer that, if you're actually visiting the memorial, uh, there's a, it looked like it was sort of a, I didn't look at this one, but sort of a, a, an app that will guide you through it. Is that right?
1: It's the same content, except instead of dropping it into a model of the memorial, you actually drop it into the same space in the Mm -hmm. actual memorial. So there's a place where you drop the timeline tower, Mm -hmm. and there's the timeline tower at the memorial Gotcha. in in, in the physical space. The reason we separated them, by the way, was um, the app at the memorial is oftentimes downloaded in situ at the the memorial. And that whole 3d model of the whole thing it's kind of big yeah there's a yeah. lot of stuff there and i had a nightmare one day of people standing around the memorial waiting for this giant app to download <laughs> so we split them into two parts yeah and the uh, uh the um, uh, features and the experiences are much much smaller than the giant model so it's yeah. it's a much lighter download that makes sense um have you given thought um Looking, you
0: know, looking to future generations of technology. So, you know, Apple, at the time that we're recording this, Apple uh, last week uh, made public their Vision Quest Pro, I think. is Vision the, Pro. Yeah, Vision Pro. Um, and, of course, I was consumed by watching YouTube videos of people with that all weekend long because of that. So the technologies are advancing very rapidly in sort of the immersive experience space. Um, have you given thought as a technologist to how these technologies will continue to progress? And where do you think they're going uh, in terms of capabilities that will be impactful in a classroom, you know, 10, 12, 15 years down the road?
1: Well, uh, all right. So, so I, And I again, know that's a
0: huge question. I apologize. No, no <laughs> it's not because,
1: because you're, 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 you're in my swim lane here. I was very fortunate to have been invited to TED 2. Mm-hmm. Ted, two. I mean, this is you know, this goes back quite a ways. Yeah. But uh, I, there, I found myself in a room with 180 people, all of whom were my heroes. You know, they were all my technology heroes, uh, uh, Mark Andreessen mm. and Wozniak, you know, yeah. on and on. Yeah. There was a guy there named Jaron Lanier. Who was this uh, this incredible character with uh, who had was working on the idea of something called virtual reality, and he brought in a demo system that was run by giant computers where he leveraged these two TV sets that you could put in front of each eye and look around a space and discover a duck under the table. That was my introduction to it, <laughs> and. Um, and we try to, with with uh, MetaVision, uh, we try to apply uh, virtual reality to many, many applications, uh, all very challenging. So I've been in that game and process for... Oh, I, you know, too many years, I don't even want to say. Uh, and so as we were heading into this project, one of the questions to me was, you know, because now, uh, you know, out comes the, um, uh, the Oculus, um, uh, you know, headset and so forth. There's actually, you know, more than 30 of them in the world. Uh, we made the very conscious decision that we were not going to go <clears throat> with these technologies at this time into uh, VR, uh, and because in real practical sense, the year that we launched the app, uh, big breakthrough, 30,000 units of VR headsets were sold, mm-hmm. but 1.8 billion smartphones went out yeah. that were all AR capable. So very, very practically, that's where we went. Mm-hmm. The, uh, discussion about, you know, what are you going to do about Vision Pro, in fact, was had with me yesterday. Um... There are a lot of changes. Um, I, I do believe that we are going to have a mixed reality world. I am waiting for what's been, you know, Vision Pro is actually a VR headset yeah. with really good pass-through. Yeah. And it's it's quite wonderful. I I think uh, you were talking about the video reviews. Uh, a gentleman named Nyast, who I love as a, as a technology uh, pod, uh, video caster and so forth, put one on and wandered through... Manhattan for a day. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think his sort of response to all of that was, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I can recommend that you buy one of these $4,000 ski goggles right now, but I can tell you this, this is really important. And uh, I can also tell you this, that the one that I'm holding in my hand here that I've just had for a day is probably going to be the worst one of these yep. that Apple ever makes. Stand by. This is big. And I think he's right. Yeah. So bringing the computing into, and, and you know, a- Apple actually renamed this now as spatial computing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, they've been doing this all along. Uh, Jobs sitting there saying, well, it's a big deal. I'm going to put your whole music library into your pocket boom (laughs) you know i mean they they really are wonderful wonderful thinkers from that standpoint i don't think they're wrong with where they're going Uh, i think it's a very very first uh wonderful first article yeah we are going to be having computing in front of us perpetual at all times in some way
0: yeah and of course you you will also get the convergence of of you know AI platforms into that, <laughs> and of course. and uh, you know I mean it's it, it's amazing to think and to the point that you said I mean you're right this is the just as GBT was the worst of the uh, platforms that people would have interacted with and and the the success of. Um, iterations of that and the quality improvements of that will be unlike anything we've experienced. I mean, you and I both remember when the iPhone came out and actually how limited it was and how quickly the app store sort of developed the ecosystem that made it such a success. The the amount of time it will take for the headsets and uh, the AI products to do that will be a fraction of what it was for the iPhone, which is just amazing to think about and say.
1: It, it's very exciting, you know. I I, I uh, uh, I've always been excited about technology. Yeah. You know, it's uh, in fact, uh, uh, you know, my 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 actual working company is called Tech Application, and then I contract to different organizations mm-hmm. as you know, contract CTO or program manager and so forth. But but the the watchwords for Tech Application are, what is the implication of the new technology. How do you apply it to your enterprise or organization and, you know, integration, application, uh, implication, application, and then integration is the most important part. How does this technology, how do you integrate it into your workflow and culture? Mm-hmm. And uh, cause I, I, at one point in my career said, I don't want to create technology. I want to help people figure out how to use it. And, uh, and, and it's such an exciting space. I think it's dizzying for most people.
0: Yeah.
1: And I know a lot of people, you know, as they get older, they sort of go, can't you just put a pause in this? You know, <laughs> I don't want to figure out the next thing anymore. Uh, but then there's the kids who are going, what's new? What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, and, and and we have done major missteps in a lot of these technologies. I'll, I'll give you, a, a as a technologist, a, a little thought on this. Um, Just like social media had a lot of, everything is yin and yang. So Mm -hmm. um, just in social media, we had a lot of very negative missteps and, uh, you know, this new spatial computing. Uh, When I saw NIAS experience running around New York, I was sitting there going, I think it scares me a little bit that I'm going to be around people And everyone will have a separate experience. In other words, the concept of shared experience may actually disappear. And that's a weird thing to consider.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I I agree. I know that we're getting a little bit off topic, but it's (laughs) an interesting conversation. That's one of the... Things about because we do as I told you before we started recording we do a lot of AR VR content creation in my college around training programs and it's not that it's a criticism but it is an observation and fact that the learning process you have to intentionally bring that that communal experience back into it. Um, because if you only assume that a person could put on a headset, go through a really great training protocol and then be done and not ever discuss it with another person, uh, you, you have no chance of having success. I think, um, you might impact them on a certain level, but they will not learn from it in the way that they should. Uh, and, and like when we create content, mostly we're not just creating the app that people watch but we're also creating the protocol that goes around it and i think that's an important lesson in this space for teachers to think about so Teo, thank yes, you sir. so much for coming on the show and uh, i i found your discussion of the doughboy foundation and uh, how we can be teaching world war one in a really interactive and exciting way fascinating and i and i also really appreciate your comments about technology
1: well, you know, it was really a joy being here. And, uh, you know, I come back anytime and we can dweeb out on technology. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep
0: you to that. I'll keep you to that. My guest today was Teo Mayer. He's a technologist and has been working significantly with uh, both the, the, world, the U.S. World War One Centennial Commission and then, as he noted, the foundation that stemmed out of that, the Doughboy Foundation. Again, uh, you can follow up on this podcast by following the link in the text accompanying it to the Doughboy Foundation website where you can also download uh, the Visual Explorer app and also the companion app um, that you could use if you're actually on site in D.C. to go through the World War I Memorial. Uh, Thank you all for listening to Teaching Matters. Our associate producer is Adam Rich and our assistant producers are April Koska and Trinity Sweet. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. I hope you have a great day
1: and thanks for listening.